Hi, I'm Father Gregory Pine. And I'm Father Jacob Bertrand Jancic. And you're listening to the Catholic Classics Podcast, where we seek to grow our interior lives by learning from the Church's greatest saints and teachers. Each season, we'll read through a great work, explain its spiritual principles, and help you apply its timeless wisdom to your life. The Catholic Classics Podcast is brought to you by Ascension. This season, we are reading Ascension's edition of Confessions by St. Augustine. A few reminders before we get started. To download the reading plan for Confessions, visit ascensionpress.com slash catholicclassics or text CONFESSIONS to 33777. Click follow or subscribe in your podcast app for daily notifications. This is day three. Today we will be reading book one, chapters 11 through 16 in the Ascension edition of the book. We wanted to take this opportunity to thank everyone who has helped support this podcast financially. Your support is so appreciated, and it helps us to reach as many people as possible. And if you haven't already, please consider supporting us at ascensionpress.com support. Before we get into the reading, a quick look at what we are covering today in these chapters. So today, St. Augustine covers two big topics in his life, baptism and lust. Uh, he recounts a time of grave illness when he was sick, almost received the sacrament of baptism, but ultimately recovered and wasn't baptized. So we'll talk a little bit about that. And he also discusses his love for study, for reading of Latin and not Greek, and his disdain for Greek, and uses that as an opportunity to reflect on the sort of vanity of education, of oration, of those sort of things that that he begins to experience and begin to shape his life a little bit. So that sets us out. So let's get started with, with prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Breathe in me, O Holy Spirit, that my thoughts may all be holy. Act in me, O Holy Spirit, that my work, too, may be holy. Draw my heart, O Holy Spirit, that I love but what is holy. Strengthen me, O Holy Spirit, to defend all that is holy. Guard me then, O Holy Spirit, that I always may be holy. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Chapter 11. Thus, as a boy, I had already heard of eternal life, promised to us through the humility of the Lord our God, who stooped down to our pride. And even from the womb of my mother, who had great hope in you, I was sealed with the mark of his cross and salted with his salt. You saw, O Lord, how, while I was still yet a boy, falling ill once with a strong stomach illness to the point of coming close to death, you saw my God, for you were my keeper, how eagerly and with what faith I sought out the baptism of your Christ, my God and Lord, from the pious care of my mother and from your church, who is the mother of us all. And the mother of my flesh, greatly troubled as she was, since with a heart that was pure in your faith, she more lovingly labored in the birth of my salvation, would have immediately, in eager haste, provided for my consecration and cleansing through the life-giving sacraments, confessing you, Lord Jesus, for the remission of sins. But I suddenly recovered my health, and therefore, since I might well have been polluted anew with a sinful life, my cleansing was put off because the defilements of sin would after that cleansing bring greater and more perilous guilt. But I had then already believed, and so did my mother as well as our whole household, with the exception of my father. And he prevailed over the power exercised upon me by my mother's piety, convincing me that because he did not believe, neither should I. For it was her earnest desire that you, my God, rather than he, should be my father. And you aided her in this, so that she prevailed over her husband, whom she all the better obeyed, thereby also obeying you, who has commanded such things. I beseech you, my God, and I desire to know, if you would so deign to tell, 
Why was my baptism then deferred? Was it for my own good, so that the reins might be let loose, so to speak, so that I might sin? Or were they not let loose? If not, why do we still hear echoing on all sides, let him alone, let him do as he will, for he is not yet baptized? However, in matters of bodily health, nobody says, let him be wounded more grievously, for he has not yet healed. How much better, therefore, would it have been for me to have been healed at once, and then through my diligence and that of my friends, that my soul's recovered health be kept safe in the care of you who had given it? Better indeed. But how many and how great were the waves of temptation that seemed to loom over me after my boyhood? All these were foreseen by my mother, who preferred to expose to such dangers the clay from which I might later be fashioned, rather than to expose to them the very molded and shaped form that I would have had after being fashioned anew. Chapter 12 However, in boyhood itself, so much less dreadful for me than youth, I did not love study and hated to be forced to do it. But nonetheless, I was forced, and this was good for me, though I did not do well in it. For unless I was forced, I would not learn. Now, nobody does anything well when it is forced against his will, even if what he is forced to do is something good. Yet neither did they who forced me themselves do something good. Rather, what was good came to me from you, my God. For they had no care concerning how I should make use of what they forced me to learn, except to quench the unquenchable desires of wealthy poverty and shameful glory. However, you who number the very hairs on our heads used for my good the error committed by all those who urged me to learn and all the errors that I, who would not learn, committed you used for my punishment, a fitting penalty for someone who was so small a boy, yet so great a sinner. Thus, by those who did not act well, you did well by me, and by my own sin did you justly punish me. For you have commanded, and so it is, that every inordinate affection should be its own punishment. Chapter 13 But why did I have so much hatred for the Greek that I studied as a boy? Even now I do not fully know why. For I loved Latin, not what I was taught by my first masters, but rather by the so-called grammarians. For those first lessons in reading, writing, and arithmetic, I thought to be just as great a burden and punishment as any lesson in Greek. And yet here too, what was the source of this, if not the sin and vanity of this life? For I was flesh and a breath that passes away never to return. For those first lessons were certainly better because they were more certain. Through what I learned then I obtained and still retain the power of reading what is written and the ability to write what I will. By contrast, in the others I was forced to learn about the wanderings of Aeneas, forgetful of my own, and to weep for the dead Dido, because she killed herself for love, all the while, with dry eyes, suffering the death of my own miserable self among these things, far from you, O God of my life. Indeed, what could be more miserable than a miserable being who does not take pity on himself, weeping at the death of Dido for love of Aeneas, but failing to weep at his own death for failing to love you, O God? You, O light of my heart, you, O bread of the depths of my soul, you, O power who gives vigor to my mind and rouses my thoughts, you I did not love. I was guilty of fornication against you and all around me, likewise fornicating, there echoed acclamations, well done, well done. For the friendship of this world is fornication against you, and the words, well done, well done, echo on and on until one is ashamed not to be this sort of man. And through all this I did not weep, I who wept for Dido who was slain, she who sought by the sword a stroke and wound extreme. 
But all the while I sought a worse extreme, the utterly lowliest of your creatures having forsake you, earth moving onward toward earth. And if I were forbidden to read all this, I was grieved that I might not read what grieved me. Such madness is judged to be a loftier and richer learning than what I received in being taught to read and write. But now, my God, cry out in my soul and let your truth tell me, not so, not so, far better were these first studies. For behold, I would readily forget the wanderings of Aeneas and all the rest rather than forget how to read and write. But over the entrance of the grammar school, there is a veil drawn. Yes, but this is not so much an emblem of a kind of honorable secret knowledge as it is, rather a cloak of error. Let not those whom I no longer fear cry out against me while I confess to you, my God, whatever my soul wishes, and consent to the condemnation of my evil ways, so that I might love your good ways. Let not either buyers or sellers of grammar teaching cry out against me. For if I ask them whether or not it is true that Aeneas came once upon a time to Carthage, as the poet tells, the less cultivated will reply that they do not know, while the more cultivated will say that he never did. However, if I were to ask how to spell Aeneas, everyone who has learned this will give me the correct answer, telling me the signs that men have conventionally established as letters for writing. I might ask again, which could I forget, reading and writing or these poetic fictions, without suffering the least detriment in the concerns of life? And who does not readily foresee the answer all must give, so long as they have not completely lost their minds? I sin, therefore, when, as a boy, I preferred such vain studies in place of more profitable ones, or rather, I loved the one and hated the other. One plus one is two, two and two is four. How I hated that song. But the wooden horse lined with armed men, and the burning of Troy and Croesus' shade were the choice spectacle for my vanity. Chapter 14 Why then did I hate the Greek classics, which have similar tales? For Homer also skillfully wove together comparable fictions and is most sweetly vain, though he was bitter to my boyish tastes. Yet I suppose that Greek children would feel the same about Virgil as I felt when being forced to learn Homer. In truth, it was difficulty, the difficulty of learning a foreign tongue, that, as it were, sprinkled bitter gall upon the sweetness of the Greek fables. For I did not understand a single word of it, and in order to make me understand it, I was forcefully impelled with cruel threats and punishments. There was a time as an infant when I knew no Latin. However, I learned this without fear or suffering, doing so by mere observation amid the caress of my nursery and merriment with friends, with smiles and light-hearted joking. Thus I learned it without any threat of punishment to urge me on, for my heart pushed me onward, desiring to give birth to its conceptions, which I could only do by learning words not from teachers but from those who talked to me, in whose ears I also gave birth to whatever thoughts I conceived. No doubt, therefore, free curiosity is more powerful for learning these things than is fearful enforcement, though such enforcement restrains this wandering freedom by means of your laws, O my God." your laws, from the master's cane to the martyr's trials, mixing for us a bitter but healing drink, recalling us to yourself from that deadly pleasure that lures us from you. Chapter 15 
Hear, O Lord, my prayer, and let not my soul faint under your discipline, nor let me faint in confessing to you all your mercies, by which you drew me from the most evil ways, so that you might become my greatest delight, above all the allurements that I once upon a time pursued, freeing me, so that I might wholly love you and clasp your hand with all my affections, and so that you might continue to rescue me from every temptation, even to my last day. For behold, Lord, my King and my God, may whatever useful thing I learned in my childhood be put to use in your service. It is in your service that I speak, write, read, and calculate. For you granted me your discipline while I was learning vain and empty matters, and you have forgiven my sin for delighting in them. In them, indeed, I learned many useful words, but these could just as readily have been learned in matters that are not so empty, and that is the safe path for children to tread. Chapter 16. But woe to you, O torrent of human custom! Who shall stand erect against your waves? For how long shall you continue to flow onward? How long will the sons of Eve roll into that huge and hideous ocean, which even those who climb upon the cross scarcely manage to traverse? Did not such human tales speak to me about Jove, the thunderer and adulterer? Doubtless he could not be both, but the tale was told so that such fake thunder might countenance and pander to real adultery. And now which of our own gowned masters lends a sober ear to him who from their own school cries out, These were Homer's fictions, transferring human things to the gods. How better it would have been for him to have brought divine things down to us. But even more truly had he said, These are indeed Homer's fictions. However, he attributed divine nature to wicked men, so that crimes may no longer be crimes, allowing those who would commit them to seem to imitate not lost men, but rather the gods of heaven. And yet, O you hellish torrent, into these waters are cast the sons of men with rich rewards for grasping such teaching, and it is approved with great solemnity when this takes place in the form within the sight of laws that appoint a salary beyond the scholar's wage. And roaring on the rocks, O torrent, you say, hear our words, learned, hear eloquence, something most necessary to reach your ends or maintain opinions." As though we would never have known words such as golden shower, lap, beguile, temples of the heavens, or others in that passage unless Terence had brought a young man upon the stage, setting up Jupiter as his example of seduction, viewing a picture where the tale was drawn, of Joe's descending in a golden shower to Danae's lap, a woman to beguile. And then note how he arouses himself to lust as though by heavenly authority, And what a God, great Jove, who shakes heaven's highest temples with his thunder. And I, poor mortal man, not do the same. I did it, and with all my heart I did it. But not one bit more easily are the words learned because of all this vileness. However, by means of them, such vile deeds are committed with less shame. I do not blame the words themselves, for they are choice and precious vessels. Rather, I censure the wine of error poured out for us from them by intoxicated teachers. And if we fail to drink these draughts, we are beaten and have no sober judge to whom we might make appeal. Yet, O my God, in whose presence I now without pain remember this, all this I in my misery learned willingly with great delight, and for this was declared to be a boy who showed much promise. All right, here we are. Chapter 11 through 16. Um, So as we mentioned in this sort of little overview, something that comes up here is the reality of St. Augustine's 
baptism. In the last episode, we talked about this sort of reality of original sin, and now we can talk about baptism for a few minutes and, and consider that. So as we said, St. Augustine recounts a moment in his life when he became extremely ill, hadn't been baptized, and there was a question of whether or not to baptize him in this moment because he was near death, but he recovered and ultimately wasn't baptized. So there are a few things going on here. Um, one question of why wasn't he baptized? Why wasn't St. Augustine baptized as an infant? I guess those are two big things, but yeah, let's, let's address those kind of, because I, th- I think generally for our listeners who are and, and us in sort of 21st century living, the experience of the sacrament of baptism is a bit different than it was in, in the 4th and 5th centuries. So, yeah, Father Gregory, do you have some thoughts, some insights here? Yeah, so I guess after the decriminalization of Christianity and even the encouragement of Christianity in the late Western Roman Empire, late antiquity, you still had a lot of people who delayed baptism a considerable amount of time. And in part, it's because the penitential practice of the church is different. So we're used to what we call auricular confession, where you go to a priest one-on-one, you say your sins, he gives you a penance and absolution, you leave, you do your penance, and the penance is usually not too laborious, it's usually not too difficult. Whereas in the 4th and 5th century church, especially for big-ticket sins, uh, so ones would be like apostasy or murder or adultery, uh, which had a kind of public dimension to them. Uh, the penitential process would be long. It would be rigorous. It would be very, very like exigent, exacting. And so it wasn't the type of thing that you wanted to put yourself through if entirely necessary. And you know that when you're baptized, you're forgiven of all pre-baptismal sin, both original and personal. So it was seen as an advantage to delay the sacrament of baptism, so that way you could avail yourself of all the graces and then not have to put yourself through any of the penitential exercises. So a lot of people would be catechumens for a long time, and St. Augustine is a catechumen for, for many years, but not yet baptized, as we'll come to discover, for you know the better half of his life, you know, or the first half of his life, whether it was better or worse, we will leave to your judgment. So yeah, that's the background. Yeah, so the question of why delay is baptism, well, because he did, he wasn't going to die. So as Father Gregory just said, there's the sort of wait because it might get worse is kind of the attitude, you know, or the penance might be too big. So I, in, in a way, maybe let's say in this just for another minute, it begs the question then, like, why not do that now? Why has the practice been moved through the centuries with the change, you know, the changes in the practice of penance and the in the sacrament of penance to infant baptism? Is that like a, a new kind of thing? Infant baptism, is that made up? What is that, you know, is that forceful against a child's will kind of, you know? Oh, yeah, great questions and difficult questions, especially in light of objections lodged by Anabaptists or, you know, Protestant denominations, Protestant ecclesial communions, which argue for later baptism. So the basic idea is that the sacraments, specifically here, let's just talk about baptism and penance, they're not just reset buttons, right? They're sources of grace. So each of the sacraments supplies us with a sacramental grace, and those graces equip us or outfit us with what we need in order to live a life of sanctity. So the purpose of the Christian life is not simply to die in a state of grace, although that is important. Uh, The purpose of the Christian life is to burn brilliantly in testimony of the God who has created you and redeemed you and draws you to himself unto life eternal. And so in light of that, we avail ourselves of graces which God intends for us from the beginning of our lives so that we can grow in them, so that we can cooperate with them, so that we can stimulate a further expression of them in due course. 
So I think that like, you know, with baptism in particular, not only do you have original and personal sin washed away, as well as all of the punishment associated with that, both eternal and temporal, uh, but you also receive grace, virtues, gifts of the Holy Spirit, fruits of the Spirit, beatitudes. You're also made an adopted son or daughter of God. Your mind is enlightened, your heart is encouraged, and you are kind of set along a path for Christian maturation, for Christian healing and growth. And so I think that there's a deepened appreciation of that over the course of the church's life, especially when some of these big heresies or apostasies of the early church and the church persecutions are, are further in the rearview mirror. Because I think with those big apostasies like St. Augustine, we talked about at the outset, is engaging with like Donatists in a peculiar way. There's a fear, right, of big time transgression because of all the problems that that creates downstream. So I think that's also, yeah, that part of the uh, part of the background and part of our current practice. Yeah, I think a, a way to summarize all that is that we are made to be saved, but we're also made to be sanctified, you know, to be holy. It's not just a living in a sort of debauchery until the final moment. You know, we're made to know God, encounter God, live with God throughout the entirety of our lives. So that kind of distills it a bit more clearly too for us. So um, this is what's surrounding Augustine and his baptism. And it'll come up again because again, he as, as we know, he's not baptized now. He wasn't baptized as an infant, but he will be later. So there's this question and reality of St. Augustine's baptism continues to loom. Here in these in these chapters too, we're introduced by name for the first time to his parents, St. Monica and Patricius. Um, Monica is a Catholic. His father is a pagan. Monica has obviously a huge role, and we're going to talk about her more as she comes up. But it's at least worth noting that here we are introduced to his parents in a, in a way that will set us forward. He spends a lot of time in these chapters reflecting on his hatred for, for Greek and kind of his emotive reactions to reading some of these Greek fables and the Latin readings too, the Latin fables, but reflecting on the evils portrayed in these works of fiction. And it kind of leads to his first discussions of his own lust and fornication, his vanity kind of setting in yeah, I, I don't know if you what your thoughts are on that, if you have something to say, Father Gregory, on his kind of it's for me in reading it, it was kind of like, okay, we're reading on this his his dislike for Greek and the study and the reading of that. And then he has these kind of passing lines about his falling into lust and sort of the growth of his vanity and maybe the connection there I think we should tease out a little bit of why he's talking about these in conjunction with one another. Yeah, I think, you know, this is a debate that's been going on since people have read. It's like, what should you be exposed to? And certainly St. Augustine, with his exposure to Plato, is conscious of what Plato writes in the Republic regarding the education of children and adolescents. And he's very, he's very wary of or careful with the types of poetical arts that will be introduced into the city because he knows that it has a great power over imagination. And so, you know, in other authors, ancient authors like Aristotle, he's like, yeah, leverage that, like use the imagination, fill the imagination. And in a kind of classical understanding of education, you would work on things that need to be memorized at the outset, and then things that kind of need to, what, inspire the individual or move the individual into a pattern of argument and a pattern of oratory. So that way you can introduce him to certain things in accord with, you know, his temperament or his kind of um, interior states throughout adolescence and then young adulthood. What am I trying to say? I'm trying to say that like you want to feed a mind as a mind expresses its hunger, like or in accord with how a mind expresses its hunger. So if you just start with seven-year-old kids and just go straight to complex philosophical topics, you're just going to annoy them or you're going to weary them or you're going to discourage them, whatever it is. So there's the sense that in education, there has to be a real sensitivity to the pupil. 
And Augustine's just showing us that, yeah, it's, it just didn't always come off well or it didn't always come off right. And I was repulsed by certain things. I was overly attracted by other things. And, you know, here we are downstream and God's made it good. God's brought it to its term or God's kind of shown me what these things were intended for all along. But yeah, it was, it was confusing at the outset or it was even, you know, um, potentially discouraging or potentially deceiving at the outset. So I think, yeah, that's all kind of in the background there. Yeah, and it shapes kind of what he's ingesting and digesting in his mind it it shapes who he becomes in these early years and we i'm sure we have that experience in our own lives you know what we i guess it's a little different for us because we're not going to school in the way Augusta. i mean we go to school but it's a different sort of setting right but you know for i think in the contemporary setting we can think more particularly of even like what we consume in the media and social media and these sort of things what we watch and listen to they shape who we are and they kind of influence our emotions and our the things that we're attracted to and saint augustine is is not what I, I guess he's not unaware of that reality in his own life so has this reflection here of how what he was given to consume in ways that you know he also he speaks about too the the school and the classroom setting didn't really prize the the moral life or pursuing the good of the moral life you know so it was more pursuing the perfection of the studies of rhetoric of grammar of pronunciation and because of that there's a sort of the the bumpers of like pursuing the good and the virtuous thing were were not there to guide and thus falls into these sort of this vanity this lustful desires you know these this unchastity vanity and 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 secular praise for his learning and wisdom and all of that so as we continue on towards the end of book one in our in our next episode we'll see this play out a bit more and reflect on it a bit more with saint augustine but i think for now we'll leave it here and we'll pick up next time so know of our prayers for you please pray for us and we'll catch you next time on catholic classics <laughs>